Nahum, if you can find it. Um, it's one of those books that you will not hear preached very often. In fact, uh, I have never heard this, uh, this book preached in any capacity uh, until this week, and that was because I decided, you know, uh, you know, let's go ahead and do this quick study for the next couple weeks, and I thought, you know, I'll listen to somebody else and see what, what they say, and I found one sermon online, uh, so I listened to that and see where, uh, to see where he went. Um, but yeah, this is going to be a, a book that you, you might have never heard preached before, uh, but it's definitely got a unique message for us, especially in a culture where we love justice. And as you, you know, turn on the news, as you look in the newspaper, you know, all around us we hear these cries for justice. And uh, this book is going to deal specifically with justice. In fact, I would argue that this book uh, covers justice more thoroughly than any other book in the entire Bible. So uh, if you've got your Bible with you, we'll start with Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, while you're finding that book, um, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the great things uh, that I love about summertime in America is, is superhero movies. In fact, I wanted to go see Wolverine tonight, uh, but my, my family informed me, no, it just opened this weekend. And I was like, oh, no, okay. I, you know, I don't like going to opening weekend because they're so crowded, and, and I actually like sitting with my family. So, um, you know, for some reason, superhero movies just seem to be released more often in the summertime than in other times of years uh, of the year. And maybe that's because... Um, you know, it's just good family fun, and, you know, the family's all together uh, in the summertime. Or maybe it's because, you know, those movies really appeal to, uh, to high school and, and college students, and, you know, they're not uh, tied down with schoolwork uh, during the summer, so they're, they're free to go see them. But in a culture that loves justice, like our culture loves justice, you know, it's a little bit surprising that, that superhero movies are as popular as they are. Stay, stick with me here. Think about this for just a second. Built into our justice system is the idea, the philosophy, that vigilantes are bad. We don't want uh, vigilantes. I mean, who made them judge and jury? Who or, or what gives them the right to administer justice in the way that they see fit? How do we know uh, when a superhero has gone too far? in administering justice. How are, how are we to judge, or who are we to judge, how far is going too far? The truth is, every single one of us loves justice. We all like justice, but we don't like the idea of it being taken too far. Now, there are a lot of things that go on in our world that seem so unjust, so unjust, and, and it, it's the type of stuff that makes you just say, you know, where is God and, and why isn't he doing anything to, to stop this or stop that? You know, children are, are starving in third world nations. And here in America, uh, you, you know, our, our children have an obesity epidemic going on. Uh, teenagers are, are kidnapped and held captive for years in a basement in suburban America. Uh, who would have thought that something like that could happen? You know, people invest their, their lifetime savings in what they believe is a, a sound investment firm, uh, which turns out to be a Ponzi scheme. Uh, over 50 million babies are mutilated in the womb as a means of convenience for somebody who doesn't want to be a parent. Meanwhile, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of couples out there who are just praying to God, God, please let us just conceive one child. One child. And I mean, when you look at just our country alone, 
How can one not be tempted to occasionally wonder, God, where are you? What are you going to do about this terrible injustice that we're constantly surrounded by? This past week, um, over the past couple of weeks, my wife and I have discovered these live bear cams. Uh, it's actually in Alaska, and you can watch these bears as they're, they're fishing for, for salmon. And so this past week, my wife and I were watching this live, uh, live feed of, the, uh, of these bears catching salmon. And uh, there's one bear who's just a, a total bully, always bulldozing his way into, uh, into the place where he wants to go. But uh, for the first time, we saw him do something we hadn't seen him do before. He, he, uh, he actually went up and stole a salmon right out of this other bear's mouth. And, and this, this other bear, you know, he kind of looked at him like, what do you think you're doing? And he just went back to fishing. No big deal. And then he caught a second one. And the same thing happened. The bully comes over, takes it right out of his, swipes it right out of his mouth, and the, the bear who caught it is looking at him like, you know, what, what are you doing, dude? You know, uh, and, and finally the third time, it happens again, only this time the bear, wasn't, the, the bear who caught it wasn't just going to let it pass. No, these guys got up on their hind legs, and they were ready to, to go to, go to uh, you know, start punching each other, start fighting with each other. And, of course, who do you think I'm cheering for? The bear who caught the fish, right, because he's, he's been bullied, and, and this, is, this isn't fair, this is unjust. And, you know, in a way, you know, I find myself feeling like, you know, I can, I can probably relate to, uh, to this bear who's being bullied in, in a sense, because, you know, I think I probably come across as really mild-mannered, uh, you know, to some people, which, you know, I think I am uh, for the most part, but someone who's a bully will often mistake my, my mild-mannered nature for weakness, and in all honesty, when somebody bullies me enough, uh, you know, and I, I hit that point, it's, it takes restraint for me, just like it takes restraint for anyone, uh, to not take justice into our own hands. I mean, we've all got a boiling point, right? We, we've all been there. Somebody has taken us to the end of our rope. Somebody has pushed us to the end of our limits, and we, and we say, finally, you know, that's enough. I've got to do something to, to stop this. Nobody likes a bully. But the truth is, um, you know, when, once you understand bullies, uh, you'll find that bullies don't like themselves very much either. But in a fallen world, we are all too often forced to settle for less than ultimate and true justice. Instead of justice, what we see is, you know, a, a criminal gets a plea bargain and serves, you know, less than half of the time than they would have served if they would have just been found guilty of the crime that they were actually guilty of. Or a person will receive a, a completely fair trial that gets a lot of publicity, they'll get acquitted, and, and then that person will be scorned by the public uh, who, who, you know, don't like the verdict, don't agree with the verdict. And so that person's never really free. Justice hasn't been served, because even if they're acquitted, they're never free to live their, their life the same way again. See, there's something in us, in every single one of us, something that's built into every single one of us that longs for justice, that absolutely loves true and ultimate justice. We all want the type of justice system where, you know, a person has to pay in full for a crime that they have committed. But given our love for superheroes and and our love and our our longing for justice, it, it actually reveals something about us. It reveals that you and I want vengeance. We want vengeance. And the, the word vengeance can make you feel a little bit uneasy, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a harsh word, vengeance. Uh, it can make us uneasy but because when we think of vengeance, it's almost the implication that it, it's not justice. It, it's justice plus interest. In other words, instead of just being you know, 
eye for an eye or, or whatever. It'll be uh, an eye and an ear for an eye or something like that, you know. But vengeance really means, at least in the biblical sense, vengeance really means uh, fair punishment. That's what we want. That's what we long for. And yet, the idea isn't all that appealing because none of us is perfectly capable of carrying out perfect justice. We all know that if somebody had, if one person or one group of people had the kind of power and and precision to carry out justice, it's kind of a scary idea because we all have seen that power can so easily corrupt a person. And so in reality, we wouldn't want a superhero because who or what would restrain somebody like like Superman or, or Wolverine if they were to take justice too far, if they were to be corrupted. Who would want to be the one to hold those guys accountable? Not me. I'll say that much. Uh, you, you guys can be free to stand in front of somebody like that, but not me. You know, I, I believe that the reason that we love superheroes in the movies is because it gives us just a brief moment to vicariously experience a sense of true justice. That's safe. It doesn't make any of us feel threatened. Two hours and, and, and then we're, we're out of there, right? It's, it's not threatening. But justice in the real world is elusive. And it's into this world, this fallen world, where where true justice so often seems to elude us, so often appears to be completely absent, that the God of the Bible speaks through a prophet named Nahum. So if you've got your Bibles open, we'll start with verse 1. The Oracle of Nineveh. In other words, this is addressed to Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, the book of Nahum, not surprisingly, was uh, written by uh, a prophet named Nahum, the Elkishite, according to this first verse. Uh, The Hebrew word Nahum is interesting. It means comforter. Comforter. That's the, you know, it's kind of ironic considering that this book is really about God's wrath being poured out on his enemies. However, uh, scholars really have no idea who the Elkishites even were. They have no idea where this, this Elkosh village or, or tribe uh, was located. Apparently, they were a, a fairly small tribe uh, that was entirely wiped out at some point. Now, there are two events um, mentioned in the book of Nahum that, uh, that help us identify when the book was written. The first event is the fall of Thebes to the Assyrians. And we know based on history, uh, you know, all kinds of history sources, that this happened in 663 B.C. However, Nahum speaks of that event as being in the past tense, so we can assume uh, with a high degree of certainty that, uh, that this book was written after 663 B.C. The other event that's mentioned in this book is the destruction of Nineveh which, again, history tells us, happened in 612 B.C. So, uh, based on those two events, we can be fairly certain that Nahum, uh, because he spoke of of this this destruction of Nineveh as a future event, uh, we can be pretty sure that this book was written between 663 and 612 B.C. Uh, Unlike most of the books of the prophets, however, Nahum wasn't calling for anybody to to return to faithfulness to God. He wasn't calling for anybody to repent. God had already done that with the Ninevites. He'd already sent a prophet, one of his servants, to preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites. That's what Jonah had the responsibility of doing uh, about 150 years prior to the point that this book was, uh, was written. Uh, the people, when Jonah had gone, the people had repented uh, because of Jonah's message, uh, but the culture 
apparently, didn't remain faithful, didn't remain repentant uh, for very long. In fact, uh, at this point, when, the book, when this book was written, they were probably more sinful and more rebellious toward God uh, than they had ever been. The Assyrians were absolutely ruthless. This was, this was their, their reputation. They were ruthless as they invaded nation after nation in the quest to attain more money and more power. Man, there, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. They had destroyed Samaria, the, uh, the capital city of Israel, and they had invaded Judah in the days of Hezekiah. And so God's people, at this point, when, when they're being invaded by this Assyrian empire, they're asking the same questions that you and I might be uh, prone to ask today in the face of all of this injustice that we see all around us. They're asking, God, where are you? When are you going to step in? What about these promises that you had made? God, when will you bring this evil to an end? And so God answered their cries and their longing for ultimate justice through this obscure character named Nahum, assuring the people that justice would be served and that he, God alone, would be the one to deliver it. And this is a reality that should make anyone with ears to hear listen up. It should, make us, it should make us listen, and it should make us shudder. Because if an all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God who hates sin is going to deliver justice, who's safe? Who could possibly be safe? All of us have sinned. Not one of us can be found without fault. And we do it regularly. We, we do it all the time. All of us have sinned. You know, we like the idea of a God who, who loves us and who offers peace to us, uh, but a God who seeks vengeance on everyone who's fallen short of his righteousness is just downright scary. That's a scary idea. What we see, therefore, is that we have this longing for justice, and yet we don't want it. We're, we're double-minded. We're, we're duplicitous. It puts us in a catch-22. We, we love and we long for justice, true ultimate justice, the kind that only, only an all-knowing and all-powerful God can deliver. And yet, if such a God exists, you and I risk being placed in the crosshairs of the scope of his wrath. We want God to punish evildoers like Hitler, Mao Zedong, Stalin, but we don't want people like you and me who have never killed anybody, uh, we've never, uh, you know, maybe you've never stolen, uh, you've, you've never, uh, you know, set out on a conquest for world domination like the king of Assyria has. We don't want to be on the receiving end of God's vengeance along with people like Hitler and Mao Zedong. The truth, however, is we don't want a God who delivers justice arbitrarily either because that kind of God, by definition, would not be righteous. He would not be just. And if he's not righteous and just, he can't deliver true justice. Imagine a judge who gets caught playing favorites in his courtroom. Can you imagine the outcry? Can you imagine the the, the disgust that the public would have that a public official, a judge, had been corrupted and, and played favorites? You know, we have to understand that the only type of God that we can trust to judge rightly and with true justice, is a God who never looks the other way, who never winks at evil in any degree, no matter how good that person may or may not seem. This is the only way that a God who is good, righteous, and just can judge. Now, as we study this book for the next couple of weeks, let me ask you to put your own life on trial as we go along. I mean, really think about what we're seeing here. What does God's goodness imply 
in your own life. Does it mean the same thing it meant for the Ninevites? Judgment? Or does it mean what it did for the faithful among the Israelites? Rescue and comfort. Let's continue, verses 2 and 3. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. See, the city of Nineveh was going to fall. And Nahum wants his people to understand that it won't be by their doing. It won't be because of their strength and their might. It won't be by any other nation's doing either. It will be by God's doing and God's alone. He's slow to anger, and he's given the Ninevites every chance in the world to repent. 150 years ago, they had this message. It had time to soak into the culture, but they turned away from it, and now the time has come for a verdict. The time has come for judgment and do punishment. It's time for justice to be served on the wicked. There was an old Schoolhouse Rock song. Uh, any of you guys remember Schoolhouse Rock? You guys watched Saturday morning cartoons when you were a kid, you know, and you had Schoolhouse Rock. And one of the songs was called Unpack Your Adjectives. Uh, of course, adjectives are words we use to really describe things. I won't go into singing it. Um, as Nahum reaches into his bag of adjectives to start unpacking his adjectives, he pulls out words like, Jealous, avenging, wrathful. In fact, three times here, just in verse 2, Nahum uses the word avenging or vengeance, uh, which are the same root word in Hebrew, by the way. So this is a repetition, three times. And we know that when something is repeated three times, it's something that's really serious. Just like when the angels are, are flying around God's throne and Isaiah sees them and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. We want to make note of the fact that God is holy and Isaiah didn't want us to miss that. Likewise, right here, Nahum doesn't want us to miss vengeance and avenging. When something's repeated three times in Hebrew, it's, it's serious business. It means listen up and pay attention. The essence of justice, however, is reflected in verse 3, where Nahum tells us that Yahweh, that's what it means, Yahweh is when you see the capital Lord, capital L, capital O, etc. Uh, we're using the word, we're talking about the word Yahweh. Uh, the essence uh, of justice is reflected in verse 3, where Nahum tells us that Yahweh is slow to anger, and yet he's great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That is justice. That is perfect justice. The guilty have no chance of acquittal, no chance of a hung jury, and no chance of a plea bargain in God's court. Now, Nahum, actually, he kind of sounds like, uh, like a bailiff calling out, All rise! You know, the, 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 the almighty Yahweh is now entering into his courtroom. Uh, five times in verses 2 and 3, we find the word Yahweh. There's no mistaking who Nahum is referring to because this is the name of God that was revealed to the Israelites when he first entered into a covenant relationship with them in the book of Exodus. And further, the words slow to anger come straight from Exodus, actually. They come straight from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, uh, where Yahweh makes his glory pass before Moses. And this is only one of actually several references that we find in the book of Nahum that refer back to and quote from the book of Exodus when God brought comfort and rescue to his people, freeing them from slavery, delivering them from their enemies, executing justice 
on those who plot against him. And so the message is this. This is a holy God who remains faithful toward and defends those with whom he has a covenant relationship. Now, he's not here to make friends. He's not here to make amends. He's not here to win a popularity contest by any means. He is matchless in every way possible. Nobody on the face of the earth, nobody in all of the universe can compare to him. And as Nahum describes, uh, continues to describe Yahweh, we see that nothing in all of creation falls outside the scope of his knowledge. Nothing can be said uh, to be something that he is unaware of. He sees it all, he knows it all, and he punishes those who plot against him. We continue. Verses 4 to 6. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. All of creation trembles in the presence of of this almighty, all-powerful God. He is sovereign over every inch of it, and it's as though it just comes completely undone at, 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 the, most, at, at the smallest uh, level, at a subatomic level. Everything starts to come undone as he enters the scene. And of course, this is, uh, in one sense, this is poetic imagery, um, but this does the trick of uh, you know, describing him a whole lot better than simply saying that God is awesome. God is awesome. Uh, time's infinity. We, we, we don't have a word that can describe how awesome he is. He's more awesome and more powerful than any one of us can possibly imagine. But this is also um, more than just poetic imagery. After all, he did demonstrate his power to dry up the sea in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea, um, of course. And, and what happened when God descended on Mount Sinai? Fire comes down. The mountains tremble. Fire comes down. And where did that happen? Exodus. Exodus. This is the same God who rescued his people. And this same God who rescued his people once has shown up on the scene to do it again. And it's as though Nahum is watching God as God moves north against the Assyrians. And he asks this rhetorical question, who can stand before him? Who can endure his wrath? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. Nobody can. Nobody can stand before this God. Now, I've been reading, a, I've been reading this book um, by a preacher turned atheist. Uh, interesting book. But uh, his story is, is kind of interesting. He was dismayed uh, by God and the entire Christian faith when after years and years of, of praying, he, he realized that God wasn't answering his prayers in the way that he had expected. And further, God wasn't answering his prayers in the time that he had expected. And so he decides, you know, God must not be real. Now, that's not logical at all. That, that's not logical in any sense. But throughout his book, um, he shares similar stories from people who left the faith because the God, and I say that with a little g, The God that they worshipped refused to act like some kind of cosmic butler uh, who's at our beck and call uh, on a whim's notice, you know. But when we see this type of description that Nahum gives us here in the opening verses, I have to wonder, 
What gives anyone the idea that, that Nahum is like a genie in a bottle and you know you just rub the bottle and you say some magic words and he shows up? What, what, what can I do for you? This isn't the type of God who says, what is your heart's desire, Master? This is the type of God who says, I alone, to be, I alone deserve to be your heart's one desire. I alone deserve to be your Master. One of the most famous formulas, for lack of a better term, uh, for evangelism that you'll find is, is uh, it starts with the question, if you were to, uh, to die tonight and God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? Anybody heard that one? Uh, we've all heard that one. Uh, I think this is asking the wrong question because there are some wrong assumptions behind it because everybody wants to go to heaven, right? And, and that's kind of what the question is setting them up for. But this question presupposes that heaven is the end and God is the means into heaven. In other words, it presupposes that God is the way to get into heaven. But if God is our heart's greatest passion, if God is our heart's greatest desire, as he should be, then we must see it flipped upside down, where heaven is a means of getting to God. Our attitude must be that if God is not in heaven, then we don't want to be in heaven. You see the difference? There's a total difference there where the question assumes that heaven is a person's greatest desire, but God must be, and only he deserves to be, a person's greatest desire. Think of it this way. Imagine there's a young guy who meets this beautiful girl, and this beautiful girl tells this guy that he should marry her. He says, why? Why should I marry you? Why should I do that? And she says, because I've always wanted to be married. I mean, think about that. The desire to be married in and of itself. To the right person, you know, somebody that you, you really love and want more of, that it's, it's a good thing. But to, the desire to get married in and of itself is not grounds for marriage. Eventually, it's going to fall apart. If, if all she wants is to be married, not necessarily to you, but just to anybody, you know, there, there's a pretty good chance that she's going to leave you someday. There's a pretty good chance that she's going to find somebody else. The only good reason to get married is because the man and woman want as much of each other as they can possibly get. And the same holds true for God. Heaven should not be our greatest desire. That title, our greatest desire, belongs to Yahweh and God alone. This is a God who deserves the throne of our hearts above anything and everything else. And so I wonder... For the person who hasn't committed their life to Jesus, the person who is not a Christian, the unbeliever, how does a passage like this, this description that Nahum's giving us of Yahweh, how does this make you feel? You see, here in verse 2, the unbeliever falls into a very, very uncomfortable category. Enemy. Now, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you might not see God as your enemy necessarily, but this is telling us that he sees you as his enemy. And that should scare you. This is a God who cannot be fooled. This is a God who can't be fleeced. He sees what's going on in your heart. He sees the offenses that have been made. He sees that you have not loved his son, that you've rejected him. Again, I'm, un- I'm addressing the unbeliever. And of course, you know, the, the significance of that is that that son that he sent, Jesus, he died for your sins. If you will believe in him, and to reject the son is to reject God. To reject God, you're not going to heaven. How does that make you feel for the unbeliever? Let's continue. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. 
for the unbeliever. This is not the type of God that you want to have as an enemy. For the Christian, how does this image of God make you feel? Does this type of God make you feel fear and reverence? I, th- I think it certainly should. Does, does this seem like a mild-mannered, you know, a, a, a tame God who wouldn't dare rock the boat of your life, who wouldn't dare uh, upset our lives in the least? You know, it's easy for us to confuse the idea of a good God with a God who's just, just safe and, and predictable, who, who won't send us through the storms of life as a means of transforming us into the likeness of his Son. God is good, but he is jealous. He is jealous for his glory to be reflected in the lives of his people. But here's one more question for you to ponder. Given this description of God, of Yahweh, what could possibly cause you to doubt his sovereign power? What could possibly give any of us the impression that God can't give us the power to overcome the enemy's influence or, or, or temptation or, or to, to overcome the havoc that he's trying to wreak into our lives? This is a God who can be fully trusted, who can be fully trusted to deliver ultimate justice. This is a God whose plans cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped. This is a God who will seek vengeance on his enemies, and that is the God that the Bible speaks of, and that is the God who has entered the courtroom, the proverbial courtroom here. Let's continue, verses 9 to 11. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Now notice how, how this passage is structured. It's structured kind of like a sandwich. Like th- there's this and this. There's like repetition here and here. And in between is, is the meat or peanut butter, whatever kind of sandwich you like. It begins and it ends with those who plot and scheme against Yahweh. Those who plot and scheme against the Lord. And Nahum makes it clear for us that this type of person who plots and schemes against the Lord does not have a chance standing before God. He likens them to a dry, withered straw that won't rise up twice. You're not going to have a second chance. And this dry, withered straw just gets consumed by fire. This is the consequence of standing in opposition to God. And God is coming to pronounce judgment against injustice and against anyone who opposes him. Nahum seems to identify one person in particular here, though. He's one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Now, in, in context, given you know, what we know about the history that's going on here, uh, it might seem reasonable, uh, and it probably does seem reasonable, to conclude that, uh, that Nahum is talking about the king of Assyria, who, of course, would be the one who's behind uh, th- this, this awful empire, the one who's behind these attacks. However, the word that gets translated as wicked counselor literally means son of Belial. I'm not sure why it gets translated as wicked counselor. It's, the literal translation from the Hebrew is son of Belial. And that's a word that we don't see very often in Scripture, but we do find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, where we read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So in this context, 2 Corinthians, Paul's referring 
to the enemy of God, to Satan himself. And so Nahum's statement seems to imply that behind all of the evil scheming and plotting of the king of Assyria lies the adversary of God, Satan. But again, um, Nahum's kind of vague here, and I would argue that he's, he's intentionally vague. He doesn't name the king of Assyria by name. He doesn't want people like you and me, uh, to, you know, because we're thinking that because we're living 2,600 years after this was written, that it doesn't apply to us today. No, this judgment that he's pronouncing is reserved for anyone who has plotted against God. Now, I'm sure that you probably haven't plotted uh, you know, genocide or world domination like the, the king of Assyria has. Uh, and, and if you have, um, you know, talk to me after the service. Uh, but anyone who has plotted against the Lord in any way, shape, or form falls into the same judgment of someone who's plotting uh, genocide and, and world domination. And chances are, you know, there are plenty of good people out there uh, who consider themselves to be safe from this type of judgment because by their own estimation, they are good upstanding citizens, uh, you know, they, they, don't, they don't steal, uh, they, don't, they, don't, they haven't killed anybody, uh, they don't covet anything, they, they, they work for everything that they have, uh, and yet their life is about themselves. Their life is about their own pleasure, their own power, their own self-esteem, their own satisfaction, and these are things that are diametrically opposed to living for God's glory. And so what do you do? You, you, you plot ways to establish yourself. You plot ways to demonstrate and increase your sense of power. And you, you, know, you might see other people as just a means to an end, people that you, you, know, you can use as stepping stones on your way to the top, people who can be used as, as means to your desired end, which is basically the pleasure and the worship of you. Do not be deceived. You might not murder, you might not steal, but your lifestyle is nevertheless in opposition to God because you've been living for your own glory rather than for God's. And to live for your own glory is to plot against the Lord. We're all indicted here. Every one of us deserves to be indicted here. And now we hear the verdict. Verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. Now this marks the first time in the book that God is speaking directly. Uh, we see that even though there is nothing that, uh, that could have, that, 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 that's uh, weakened the Assyrian military, nothing that's weakened their army, even though they, you know, they're, they're in good standing with their allies, even though they are fully armed and ready for battle, their time has come. And it's time for them to be held accountable for their actions. God is going to act to bring their era of devastation to a close. And actually, history attests to the fact that the Assyrian Empire fell so quickly, fell rapidly. In fact, the empire more or less imploded as all of a sudden, within like a year, their hearts suddenly turned against one another and civil war ensued and suddenly the empire just collapsed. They became powerless in like one year. 
You know, the naturalist would look at this and say, well, pfft, of course that wasn't God's doing. I mean, uh, we see this type of thing happen. You know, this is just a case of a, a bunch of rulers, a bunch of, of kings, uh, national leaders turning against one another. But God wants us to know, which is why this is being written in advance of Nineveh's fall, God wants us to know that this is his doing. Humanity would love to believe that you know, they make their decisions freely and uh, God is basically saying in return, no, I have the sovereign power to bring about my will through the doings and the decisions that are freely made by man. He addresses Judah. They've been afflicted by God. They've, they've been suffering under God's discipline through the Assyrian enslavement, but that's about to come to an end. God is going to deliver justice and set his people free. We continue with verses 14 and 15. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. This is the second part of the guilty verdict, and it's, it's also historically significant. Think of all of the ancient cities that are, that are still around today. You know, you can go through uh, parts of Europe and parts of the Middle East where, where these, these cities have, have lasted thousands and thousands of years, and they're still big cities today. Uh, you know, Rome has uh, one of the biggest airports in the world. You know, it, it's a huge center. Uh, likewise, uh, Jerusalem is, is still standing. Uh, Constantinople is still standing, but missing from the list of all of these huge cities that once had all of this this power uh, that has survived the test of time is the name Nineveh. Where is it today? It's buried. It's buried. Uh, God is announcing their invitation to their own funeral to them. He says, I'll prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Guess what? You're showing up whether you want to or not. And they're buried. They're wiped off the face of the earth once and for all. And in fact, a few hundred years later, not not long after this, Alexander, the great's army, would march right over this land where Nineveh stood, and it would be buried to the point where they didn't even realize that they were standing above an ancient city. They were literally buried, thoroughly, so that nobody would even realize that that city was ever there. But then we see a contrast between verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, God's enemies are invited to attend their own funeral. But in verse 15, we find a proclamation of freedom and of rescue for God's people. See, the, the, the purpose for this chapter is not just for us to know something about history, you know, so that we can you know, pass, a, pass a history test or you know, pass a Bible knowledge test. The purpose of this chapter or chapters like this is to cause us uh, to, to stop and think, what's the verdict going to be when I stand before God? For the person who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, for the salvation of their soul, the verdict is guilty. On the day that you stand before Yahweh, your gods, and again I say that with a little g, your gods will do you no good. The, 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 the gods of, of sex, pleasure, ego, achievement, money, power, all of your gods, where will they be? They'll be used as evidence against you before Yahweh. For the non-Christian, in the midst of this awe-inspiring picture of God, 
What we see here is that all you have to stand on is your self-righteousness, and it's not good enough. But what we see here is that uh, in the middle of this chapter, we find the only hope that any of us have. Verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. See, the unbeliever hasn't taken refuge in God. That's That's what separates the believer from the unbeliever. We've taken refuge in God. So here what we find is an invitation for the unbeliever to know him, to come into a covenant relationship with him, to take refuge in him before your day of judgment comes, and it's just too late. You might be God's enemy now, but Paul said this. He said this in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. For the unbeliever, the God whom you have plotted against and schemed against has offered his own son, Jesus Christ, on behalf of anyone who will trust in the atoning work that Jesus accomplished on Calvary and believing that he was raised from the dead. In this chapter, we've seen the consequence of standing in opposition to God, and it's a price that nobody is going to want to have to pay when that day comes. Nobody is going to want to have to pay. But this is not fire insurance. I am not selling fire insurance. Fire insurance doesn't change your life. You buy insurance so that you can continue on with your life as is and not change anything, and just in case something happens, you're covered. This is not fire insurance. The offer here is to deny yourself, to betray yourself, to betray your own ego. Deny yourself. Lay down your selfish pride and trade in your sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. That is your only hope. God will take you just as you are, and you can be free to stop living for the sake of sin. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, you've never been free to live for anything other than sin. But God is willing to free you to live for God's glory. But know this, because God is good, because God is good, he will condemn all of those who oppose him until the bitter end. You know, when you hear people crying for justice, and we all do, what it really is, what, what, what it really reveals is a deep longing for Jesus. Because Jesus, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Lord of ultimate, true, final justice. He will right every wrong. There is nothing that escapes his power, his sovereignty. One day, the Bible tells us, one day every one of us is going to have to stand before him. That's the one who's come. That's who's come to even the score here in Nahum. Every one of us is going to have to stand before him and be held accountable for every second of our lives someday. And so with that in mind, every second of our lives should be lived with eternity in mind, with an eternal perspective, for the sake of exalting Jesus Christ as Lord and for the sake of God's glory. Keith Green once said, and I'll end with this. Keith Green once said, all roads lead to the judgment seat of Christ. God will be good on the day that you stand before him. The only question will be whether you stand on your own sense of self-righteousness and receive a guilty verdict, or if you stand on Christ's righteousness and receive a verdict of 
not guilty. In the words of Psalm 34.8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And for those of us who have sought refuge in him, we can attest to that fact. We live for the sake of glorifying him and not ourselves. Let's pray. Oh God, you are beyond awesome. Words can't even come close to describing you, Lord. The best we can do is come up with a picture of how awesome, how powerful you are. And God, it's, it's so humbling to know that as a sovereign God who will deliver perfect justice, you have taken your wrath upon yourself, upon your Son, so that whoever believes in him will be spared from that wrath, but will be declared not guilty on the day that we stand before you. God, you are good. We trust you. Because we trust you, Lord, teach us to live for you. Teach us to be more like you. Lord, I pray that justice will be served on earth as in heaven. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who stand for justice, who don't tolerate corruption in any way. Teach us, Lord, to reflect your goodness, your justice in our own lives in order that you can be This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.